All right, welcome back. This is episode four of Mo Faith, and we have been having a, a big, good conversation over the last episode, talking about a variety of topics, and we're going to go right into what we we're talking about, which was climate change uh, as it relates to immigration, American policy, the future. What are you thinking, Mo? Oh, okay, so we were just talking about cartels and um, how it's quite possible that the people in those communities could really actually just be doing what they think might be the best for their communities. Yeah. And that made me think about some things I learned um, working with Extinction Rebellion while we were living in Europe. Okay. Um, And one of the, so one of the biggest things that I learned in the, the fight over climate change, um, how can you tell somebody who is trying not to die of frostbite over the winter that what they're doing is killing the climate when they're literally trying not to die this winter and Um, my question on that as well is why should folks who have so much resources aka rich white wealthy light-skinned folks for the most part be in charge of educating the poor populace that they alone should take the brunt of those issues when those folks are using electricity, when they're driving around in cars, and they're accessing maybe a million times the amount of carbon that a mm-hmm. poor person in Latin America will ever access in their life, right? Right. My, I, I find it to be a very hypocritical movement. Right. Greta, right. Uh, I like the little Greta girl. Ain't nothing wrong with her. I ain't gonna make fun of her. <laughs> I see. I see, she seemed like she trying her best, and she'd be like, "I gotta take a plane." You know, she would be living the actual shit. You know, but a whole bunch of them, they'd be mm-hmm. flying around. John Kerry, yeah. all of them on private jets. I'm like, I'm really, is really, a little huge, embarrassing here. A huge area of contention with me. How, <laughs> how, how, how can you tell ninety percent of the world that has the carbon footprint of an ant? Yeah that they're causing the problem when you have the carbon footprint of a 747 uh-huh. and you're a single person. Yeah. And then none of them like to talk about it too. You want to, want to talk to them about it, what, where they live and all this type of stuff. They keep it real private. They keep it all offline, who they are, who they, where they yeah. actually are. And I think that's a bit of a problem with yeah. anonymous uh, style of protesting is that it leads us to have folks who aren't accountable to the movements yeah. in which they represent. Now, I... Um, I have a lot of respect for the people that Jen and I met that were in Extinction Rebellion. The the group of people that we were communicating with, that we were talking to, they were putting their money where their mouth were. They were putting their principles where their mouth were, and they were putting yeah, yeah. their actions. Um, some of them were had given up their day jobs. Um, they had um, taken their children out of schools. Um, so these are some of, some of the people that we were talking to were professional people who had had full-time jobs in the system, who had realized just how much they were contributing to the problem, how they were teaching the problem to their children and had had such, um, a problem morally with what they were contributing to that they removed their children from the system, began protesting and squatting in apartments in Paris. 
And this well, is that's what I'm method. saying is a, a lot of times, not all of them, I definitely feel like there's people who are well-meaning, right? But a lot of this, it comes down to, I feel, just basic human function, that many times humans who don't have the memories that I have or, or that you, you have as well, oh, yeah. that they're enacting different types of privilege without realizing it. And that's right? kind of what they like, were. What a privilege it was to be able to let your job go and go squat in a house, right? Mm -hmm. How many black, brown, and native people would think that's awesome? Right. Like right. That, it's an insult. It's, it's, it's almost it's such an interesting thing, because anytime they come around, it's Thinks and Rebellion. All these people who I've, I've kind of run into, they usually get like kicked out of black spaces or others because they're so extremely privileged and they live <laughs> in such a strongly protected echo chamber that they have no concept of how fucking ridiculous it sounds. Right. Whereas me as a black person or brown person, or native people, most of us would rather those people of privilege stay entrenched. Right, mm -hmm. we want you to stay there. And there's one real nice uh, person out there in the world. She came up with a real great idea. She's a liberated mathematician, Piper Heron, pissed off a whole bunch of people in the math world by suggesting this one very interesting thought that she, as a black professor, was having trouble getting tenure. That many black LGBT people who are in math or in those higher disciplines in academia can't get tenure, can't get a role because there's all these white guys who have been there first. So she was like, hey, here's an idea from a math perspective. That if all you white guys who have access give up your next promotion to a black person, to a person of color, to LGBT person, that from a math perspective, we'll get closer to equality faster that way, right? It lit the world in math on fire. People were really upset at this idea of not getting another promotion and that all their future promotions, and she didn't say all of them, she just said the next one, that if everybody gave up one, Right. Mm -hmm. And I find that that to me, I think, is actually a more scientifically sound phenomenon to ask people to give up one thing. Right. Mm -hmm. Instead of saying to people, give it all up. Right. Because mm -hmm. honestly, yeah. when you're doing that, you're still living in privilege. There's somebody mm -hmm. still sending you money. You're still accessing white face privilege or ability privilege or heterosexual privilege or something to be able to live your life and have your kids fed in a way mm -hmm. that a brown person or a black person or a native person in this country has no access to. Right. We don't have the ability to do that. If I mm -hmm. say I did, I said, I give it all up. I am uh, done. What happens to me is I'll be investigated by CPS and have my child taken from me. Right. right. What happens to this is the reality that does mm -hmm. not happen for these white activists and predominantly mm -hmm. in environmental stuff where it's almost become a, almost to me a, almost a new wave of, of highly privileged liberals who are very much like turn off your lights and then driving away in a, in a gas guzzling car. Not all the time, but you know, <laughs> in the sense of just, if you just think about like that, those people you was mentioning about, they gave up their life. They, you know, took the kids out of school. They moved to this other place. Like you're talking about all this stuff that they, they're ultimately developing issues for other people by leaving their privilege right in a way that doesn't help the people that they think no. they might want to help i i feel it's also about leadership <laughs> that a lot of people are just kind of running and not listening to black brown folks they're not listening to poor people they're not actually in the room and so they're developing these thought processes in an echo chamber without anybody saying no nah, that that's not what we need we need you to be up in that spot and get your kids school to be environmentally sound Mm -hmm. be up in that spot and get your housing council to adopt solar right we need you to be up in all those spaces changing where you live 
so that you have done the work there that we can continue in all these places that people live versus let me take my hand to Van Gogh. You see, and I don't know, like, I don't know where they're at right now. When we were still talking with them, there was definitely some let's, let's tape our hand to Van Gogh. Um, this particular group <laughs> was also, um, they were they were forming they were in the process of putting in um processes so that other people yeah, could yeah. repeat and it, a lot of what i was interested in and what i liked about the group that we met was that they were trying to help set in a way for smaller groups to get their finances together to be able to do local activism and one of the things that was really a driver for me that i liked they were the little group it was called all for climate Mm -hmm. um, and what what I really liked about them and what I think, regardless of where they may or may not have been in their privilege, their voice was about um, it was about the educational aspect of, of, of the children, what the children need to know about our climate and how uh, schools aren't actually giving that that level of education all around the world. And it's not an equal access. Um, and part of it isn't equal access because of what we've already mentioned. Um, some people are flying around in jets and some people are scooting around in sandals. Um, so there's that disparity uh, of just how you're gonna be getting around on the planet itself. But there's also like, what we we've also talked about how you've got that one person with the carbon footprint of the 747 and you've got that one person who you're really going to try to lecture them on using a wood burning stove to keep their family warm for the winter and you're talking about like a family of 14 in a one like you like that one wood burning stove well, and I, is just and like I think 14 that a people lot of times winter and I think many times to the credit of the climate activists and the folks who are you know, trying to create change that they're really trying to go across a bigger concept that our world is at risk, right? right? And, and they feel that that's not being heard because these corporate interests and these companies are out there trying to prevent that from happening. And I do think that that's true, that we've seen companies like Shell and Exxon and others be not just resistant, but hostile to right. anybody bringing up environmental concerns, right? But right. I also think it's extremely um, short-sighted because the conversation around gas and carbon use is finite mm -hmm. in the sense that there's a finite amount of it that exists on this earth. So unless you're kind of expanding the concept and thinking about how we deal with resource allocation, you're kind of just repeating the same thing to me. Um, that kind of goes into something I've been talking about more, kind of thinking about, which I call liberalism is the lie. <laughs> Short answer. Oh. Yes. Well, I, I basically see a very consistent pattern over the course of the last 200 years in particular. One might point to things like Jane Addams and Hull House in New York City or others where basically liberal and progressive muckrakers back in the day, as they were called, according to Mr. Belch, right? Um, <laughs> Mm -hmm. that there was this concept of we're going to go out and save the world, we're going to change things, and that that was predominantly driven by people who have extreme wealth privilege and class privilege, and that the way they were doing that when people of color or pe poor people said we want this to be done different was rejected out just outright 
in the sense that those people don't know what's best for them, right? So uh, ultimately, yeah. I often find that liberal, not everybody, but because it happens conservatives too, that there's a high level of paternalism that's enacting, um, that people are actually acting out, which is I need to educate you about something you don't know, right? Mm -hmm. Which refers to their educational privilege, which they're not acknowledging, mm -hmm. right? Which refers to their access to technology, which they're not acknowledging, mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. So all these things are not being acknowledged, but what is being acknowledged is a poor person or a person with less privileges need to do something for a person of privilege, mm -hmm. right? And that this ultimately is, is developed into a segmented groups of people in conservative, you know, environment, LGBT, women's rights, transgender rights, that all these things are kind of now segmented, but they're all operating the same privilege um, antagonism towards other humans, and namely people who they identify as conservatives, right? That conservatives themselves are the number one enemy of all these people. Um, when in reality, the enemy is themselves, right? That they themselves are spending more money. Than the whole bunch of conservatives in the United States, at least, are very poor, right? That we've kind of seen a switch in conservatives and, and progressives to a certain extent where a lot of people who are conservative in America, in the South or others, have a less educational access, less financial access, less wealth access. Right. So they don't have this access. And it's kind of this thing of these institutions and academia and all these groups kind of joining forces with progressive politics to paternalize to these groups. Right. To say you don't know better. Meanwhile, by their very nature, by going to those schools, by engaging those institutions, they are problems themselves. If they stop doing that, we would all be better off. Right. But it's like we're to me, we're spending the wrong we're spending the wrong time and the wrong things. Um, and that's in part just because we've developed a political dichotomy, right? A split between these two groups of people that allows us to spin our wheels at, at leisure. So, uh, so, I mean, that brings up a really interesting thing, though. So, on the one hand, uh, we need public education. We need education as a society. We need to have educated masses. We need a citizen base that can make informed decisions. Um, like yeah. the amount of information that we have at our fingertips today is um, so much that we, we are living literally in the golden age of information. And we have the capacity now for art and science and technology and the brain power to make things and to be um, a culture and a society unlike and unheard of in, in, in even the wildest imaginings of some of the earliest cultures. Yeah. And some of the things that we could come up with and do today, some of our earliest cultures would make and would if they had been writing of them, we would be considered gods the way that the stories would be written today or and it's aliens. just or aliens and it's just technologies it's and different ways of looking at things but yeah. it's yeah. also all primacy it's re based on an education level you have to have a a minimum citizenry of that is got a base level of education what that base level is is negotiable um but you do have to have your citizens educated. 
So then you, you bring in um, the idea of the intelligence test. This thing has driven me nuts ever since I found out about intelligent tests. These are completely subjective. Um, an intelligent test in America is going to have completely different factors to it than would be necessary in, um, say, uh, like, okay, say like a modern today, 19, like 2021, 2020, what is this, 23, 2023, the, the same test 100 years ago, you'd have to have completely different questions. Uh, in a different location, you would need totally different set of questions because you're talking about a test that has some cultural, some some scientific, some like, there's some base theoretical thinking skills that are required to get through it, but a lot of it is cultural that well, you have to be able to work through. And, and, and beyond maybe cultural, it's class. Mm -hmm. if, if culture, if class is a culture, and I think in some ways it is, mm -hmm. um, that many of these many of these tests or implementations of tools of how to test certain things, you know, um, you know, like my dad would often say, like there should be a test for street smarts because certain people would have IQs out of this world. That mm -hmm. when it comes to being able to negotiate on the street or be able to take care of themselves, and he would often identify that I did not have those street smarts, um, that I was more of a book smart person, a computer smart person. Mm -hmm. Right. That if some guy came up to me and wanted to sell me something, my likelihood of believing him was higher than uh, than it should be, which is probably mm -hmm. true. Um, that, that I'm, I'm kind of naive and gullible. Somebody says, I'm going to do this. I'm like, oh, I believe you will. And then they don't do it. And I'm like, well, there you go. You didn't do it. But generally speaking, I, I maintain a sense of optimism that is surprising even to myself. <laughs> right. Um, but I think you're I think you're absolutely right in the sense that that's a lot of what's happening, I think, with the climate change folks is that they are also a bunch of it to me is also an artificial dialogue that we have millions of bots and fake people running around the internet. And so people can perceive that there's this giant anti-climate world against them that I, frankly, I've never run into within conservative politics, right? A lot of conservatives I know are Christians who are super hardcore ecologists. So they're mm -hmm. about saving nature. They're about making sure they can be hunting and have trees and forests and lakes and places to go to. So there's almost like a, a false narrative, a false a battle that's been proposed between a group of people, between groups of people that feel differently than how they have been represented, right? Um, and I, I think a lot of that has to do with the fact that we allow media to have such a huge, um, such a huge reality in our world. Like we look at something in television, we go, "That is true. I saw it on television." When mm. if you saw it on television, the likelihood of it being true is not as high as you would think. Right. Um, if you see it with your own eyes, you experience and then you ask questions, you're able to really test your reality. That to me is a stronger indication of truth. Right. That mm -hmm. we experience this, that you and me and uh, maybe some other people, we all saw this happen together. Mm -hmm. So we take a camera and we show a picture and then the news tells us what happened. We weren't there for that. Mm -hmm. we, we're not we're not able to test the theory that this actually really happened. And I, I think that that's come up in really bad ways with, you know, Sandy Hook, uh, the deniers of people saying that it never happened, you know, all these type of conspiracies of, you know, even the Jeffrey Epstein story, I find to be almost with very much in that in that vein of Bill Clinton and, and Bill Gates and Prince Andrew are all 
you know, sleeping with underage children on a secret island, and it's like absolutely did not happen. I, I just promise you that those really large titans of industry would never be caught with their pants down, especially after 1992 when Bill Clinton got caught in the office, right? Mm. Like, how is that going to happen? And if it did happen, wouldn't you have heard multiple instances of this happening over the last 30 years with these titans of industry? Right? Where, no, we can have a story, it's told, and we believe it. So here's the thing that I know about exploitation. And I'm, I'm going to speak now quite seriously as a human rights consultant. Um, and I'm going to speak quite seriously as a person who's been educated through um, courses that I've been taking with the UN mm -hmm. on human rights um, for just a minute. I'm going to go way deep here um, because I, I feel very, very, very deeply about human rights exploitation. Um, I don't think that people in power um, are not exploiting people right this minute. I think there are conspiracies that are true of people in power who are exploiting children right this minute, that we have a huge problem in this world where children, especially of, um, let's say, young girls, um, young women of color, especially are most likely to be kept silent about the abuse that they're receiving. Um, they're the once exploited, most likely to be twice exploited. Twice exploited, most likely to be three times exploited. Once reported, most likely to never report again. Mm -hmm. Because the first time you report, if you're not taken seriously, you're never likely to report again because you are not likely to put yourself through that trauma again. And if you have reported exploitation against a powerful person, and you are not taken seriously because you are never taken seriously as a person without power reporting against a person of power. You're not going to report the second time. You're more likely to be exploited a second time. And that also puts you in the running for the third, fourth, and fifth exploitations. Which also puts you in the running for suicide. Mm -hmm. Which means that we probably have more people right now who are dying by their own hand and not reporting the abuse that they're receiving from the types of people that we have just mentioned, the, the royals, the presidents, the... Well, and that's the thing, though, is that unfortunately, and my experience is very different in the sense that I know Prince Andrew, right? So I've yeah. had a personal relationship with him. Mm -hmm. I got hired by his ex-wife, the Duchess of York, in 2007 mm -hmm. um, and had have uh, been to um, the Royal Lodge. I've been to Windsor Castle. I've spent personal in-person yeah, time with this I guy. Not so that, spent a minute with either. Other, and then I also spent some time with Bill Clinton once at, at dinner. 
he was at the same restaurant. My grandma had him come over and he, he massaged my shoulder in a, a very charming sexual way, I will say. <laughs> and I was, I was taken. Um, <laughs> and it wasn't, it wasn't like super sexual. It's like right in front of my grandparents. So it was more of like, you're a wonderful young lady. And I'm like, I am a wonderful young lady. Right. So, uh, <laughs> so I get where the charm is, but one of the things that I've seen with dealing with folks who are super famous mm-hmm. is a high level of people who are mentally unwell who mm-hmm. believes something happened with them that never did. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And I mean, things I couldn't even imagine that I saw when I was working with the Duchess of, of people who believe that they were members of the royal family, that their right. mother was, mm-hmm. was really the queen. Um, people who truly believe 100% that they have been hurt by a member of the family, and there's no evidence of that. Mm-hmm. Um, and it, it became a thing where I think, unfortunately, what's intersected is the celebrity parapsychology of mm-hmm. people who believe truthfully that they have a relationship with a famous person interacts with the rising awareness of, of exploitation. Mm-hmm. Um, and again, in that way, we were talking about our last episode of that kind of overextension that we overextended to believe all people, even when we don't have specific uh, evidence that can be proven, right? Mm-hmm. And it's not to say that exploitation wasn't happening. Mm-hmm. And I do believe that Prince Andrew was right to settle with his accuser, because I do believe that the royal institution may have limited the likelihood of these women being believed about their lived experience, mm-hmm. right? But a person who maybe met Epstein maybe five or six times. Um, and I, I'd also know because of my engagement is up until all this stuff happened, these guys were always meeting with anybody. If you've got money you can give to kids, they're going to meet with you because that's what their deal is. We are here to serve. That's what their mom and their grandma and all these people, their family is like, yo, we have this really big opportunity to draw attention to people who are disprivileged, mm-hmm. right? And we're going to do that. And people, yeah, it's, it's, that's full of crap. They're, they're royals. They have no real interest in humans. But that was what I saw was them actually trying. And that's also, I believe, Bill Gates was actually doing, too, when he found a millennium things and he's putting people in college. He's trying to help people with malaria. You know, does he, as a man from his age, can he be accused of sexual harassment or engaging with women in ways that are not appropriate on a power construct of today? Totally. Mm-hmm. Right. But the mass exploitation of, of trafficked children and young people, I think, is not happening within the halls of Congress and the halls of the royal family, as much as it's happening in the middle class, as much as it's happening in poor areas. Listen, and I'm going to tell you. Stories are not being told in favor of stories that have very little, um, well, let me say it this way. They're memory-based alone, mm, right? As much as knows what humans can actually remember, I'm very suspicious. <laughs> the absolutely like, most terrifying thing that came to me from the whole fucking COVID nightmare was the horror of the idea of every single one of the children of America being sent, or the world, I should say, being sent home to their abusive families. The ones that had abusive families. That doesn't hold for the families that weren't abusing their children. But sure. those children, so you're telling me that we have now sent home both abusive parents and children being abused. Your parent is now stressed because they don't have a job because their job has literally been cut. So now the only people that you have this child around are freaked out over their lost jobs. 
and the child has no place to escape. I can't even begin to tell you why I stopped reading the news, but I'm sure you can imagine. Oh, yeah. No, I mean, that's kind of what I specialize with on my Facebook these days is, is mm. missing kids, um, killed kids, you know, accountability for child murders. And um, I did a hashtag on it called They Kill Kids in America starting in 2020 because there were so many. It used to be maybe five, maybe ten in a year would be the tops of kids getting killed by their parents. And starting in 2020, it was 200, right? It was 300 huge numbers of, of children, and especially going missing. That was the thing that was really problematic was that we lost a whole bunch of kids that still haven't been found. Um, and there's really not a lot of attention on that. And, you know, I do think that, you know, whether it's this administration or the next, there's going to be kind of a reckoning around the COVID, you know, thing. And for myself, I mean, if somebody says, what's the number one reason why you are a Republican and not a Democrat, it's COVID-19, right? Oh, Watching these people that I grew up admiring senator warren bernie sanders the clintons all these people who i have loved my whole life went into a fucking bubble and left america to die right i lost 12 people in my family on both sides okay i had people dead every freaking couple weeks where white people had none of that because my people are black my people are poor my people immediately went out and started door dashing my people immediately went out and started bringing kids into their house who didn't have food so they became more susceptible and they shut down the churches. They shut down every opportunity where a black family would have been able to support themselves. Yeah. Right. The, the damage that was done was irreparable. And for myself, I would never support that type of activism again because it was became true to me. Like the reality, like right. I can't help my people because my people are not your people. You are white liberal Democrats who are able to DoorDash. <laughs> <laughs> and that's a whole bunch of you guys. And I feel like they're feeling it. Whether or not it's being said, the layoffs from tech are direct direct relationship to the people not using tech. The people not using tech are half the country who are Republican conservative. People have fought back economically, right? Whether or not it's being recognized, but we're seeing all these large companies that had quote unquote woke policies, quote unquote shutdown policies. All of them are losing their business. Nobody wants to deal with them. And a lot of it's like, I see within conservative world, we're, don't use Amazon, use public market, right? Don't use this, use this instead, because we have alternatives now that weren't there, right? And people, why should I go someplace where I'm going to be supporting, you know, the hurt and death of my own people? Um, and I, I've had a lot of people who say, I just don't get that. The Democrats are the ones who love us. And I'm like, I didn't see it. I didn't see it. I, I There's some people for sure forever I'll see. You feel me? Like... I love Maxine Waters. We feel differently, but she's great. Like she really legitimately supports the people who are black in Los Angeles, right? I love, uh, you know, Al Sharpton, legit, right? Like that dude, mm -hmm. for every kind of criticism is given to him, he was out there with a mask on within one month of the pandemic, handing out food, right? Legit Black Lives Matter folks all over the country helped spring up and start doing virtual food drives, right? But it was literally us by ourselves. Like I heard LA was without a food constant with all the grocery stores were empty. Like by April, 2020, they weren't being refilled. Me and some family members put together a full truck of food from Northern California, drove it down to Compton to my auntie's daycare and distributed food to like 50 to hundred families. Wow. Right. That's just us. That was who we are. 
But all that was unnoticed. All that's unheralded. Nobody actually cares, right? And that to mm-hmm. me is exactly kind of what, you know, in the future, I would never – I did a lot of work in, in March 2020 to try to get – to get everybody was really focused on an impeachment of Trump at the time. So all the Democrats were like, stop calling me faith about this pandemic thing. And I'm like, I promise you, I'm telling you, this is going to be a big thing. <laughs> I'm telling you, I, was, I, I mean, I, I called in every favor. I got a lot of people upset at me because I was like, this is really serious. We need some really serious federal support. But I didn't I didn't perceive I didn't I was naive, I'm very naive to understand that the people in power would see it as an opportunity to eliminate Trump. Right, they would see it as an opportunity that they could shut down churches, they could shut down political centers for conservatives, and benefit the Democratic Party. Right, and to his credit, that dude worked. Like I was on calls with the Trump administration after the vaccine stuff started because I was like, somebody's got to be like on the eye on this, right? So, and I mean, this guy was working, and I'm like thinking to myself, like I would never see a Democrat do this because it's June. You should be running around campaigning. Right. Mm. And the whole Democrat way to be like would be like, we have to campaign because we're important. If we don't if we don't win, you know what the conservatives will do. Right. And he didn't have that feeling. He was like, it's more important for me to fucking work and get stuff done and solve this pandemic, get this vaccine so Americans get back to work. Basically, June, July, August, all that campaign time, he's not doing it. He's focused on a, a critical, emergent American issue. And and. I, I feel like he lost the camp. He lost the election, not just because people didn't like him. It was literally he was not campaigning. He was actually working, and I was kind of like, because I we needed the vaccines. I think the vaccines definitely made people more comfortable going back to work, more comfortable leading into um, a society where COVID is part of our lives for the future ongoing. You know, but I was I was very disappointed to see so many people leverage black death right Mm. that 50 percent of in some states of the people who died were black when we represent 10 percent of the country right and that that those deaths would be used by white people predominantly liberals white liberals would take those dead bodies (laughs) and use them for political benefit you know kamala you know you know whatever she's black as well so i'm gonna you know give her a pass but and I, I do believe that they truly believe that this is the, for the best, right? But I, I do think that that's based off of them never spending any time with conservatives and kind of building up this ideology that anybody who's conservative is this evil person who really wants the downfall of society and wants us all to go back to the dark ages or something. So our our two poli- our two party system really annoys me. Um, yeah. First of all, we don't actually have a two-party system. We actually have like a 26-party system, but most people don't know about the other 24 parties. There are like 24. There's probably more than that. That's just like, I think maybe at most we only ever hear of about five that have pretty <laughs> Usually just, just four or five, like Tea Party um, and Green Party. Yeah. Um, the... The current, like the current state of the Democrat and Republican, uh, that is actually a swap, like from the early 30s when it was completely yeah. different. Um, 
uh, and that like, that's a whole fascinating history there of of of. Or also, two hundred years ago, when the Republican Party was predominantly, that's where black people felt more comfortable, mm-hmm. was Lincoln's Lincoln's party. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. The um. And don't get me wrong. I love me Obama. Like that dude is awesome. He wants to run again. I'm here. Like, like <laughs> people who tell me they're like, I hate Obama. All this. I'm like, listen. Did you ever hear about how he used to take military families in? They're like, no, I never heard about that. I thought he hated the military. I was like, no. Him and Mrs. Obama. Every week that they were in that White House, they brought in military families to watch a movie. Right. Any big movie that was coming out, they would select mm-hmm. military families to come in so the kids would get some time when their dad's away. And I'm like, this is during non-war time that these guys are doing it. And they were pretty quiet about it, I think, because they knew that progressive and liberal people would be less excited. Like, why aren't you doing this for Native Americans or black folks who are poor or whatever? Why are you focusing on the folks who defend our country, the folks who are militaristic? But they did it. They did the kids, the kids and the moms and the people. Um, and, and they were just in their hearts, very good people um, that and I do deeply respect. And I think that he, de- you know, received a whole bunch of hate from the Democrats, from Pelosi, from all these different Democrats who were against his agenda of bringing America together. Um, and, and and now I think that he, I wouldn't be surprised if he feels that most of the people who were against him were conservatives. But in my lived experience, a lot of the people who were against Obama, like 2008 to 2012 were Democrats, right? The Clinton Democrat, the, the type of person who wants to see a different type of change that don't want to see people of color rise. So the, okay. So like the funny thing is the people that I remember being against Obama when Obama was president were black Democrats who were angry that he, in their opinion, he hadn't fulfilled his campaign promises. Yeah. Um, there was definitely some black women who were displeased because he did a lot of focus on black men. He had a, like an institution and a whole thing at the White House called My Brother's Keeper, which is to support African-American men and young men and, and boys. And he never, during the entire eight years that he was president, he never created one for women. Right. So once again, hey, what about us? Like, oh yeah, and I saw that for sure. Like when I, that was one of the big things that was really kind of disappointing about the Trump administration. To their credit, was that they had like maybe a hundred times more women working for them than he did. Mm-hmm. So I always kind of got the feeling that it was like they were worried about him getting accused of like being too charming or having like a Bill Clinton type of situation happening. So they mm-hmm. always kept the women really low, and the only women who I really saw in the White House when I went were always Butch. Mm-hmm. Every single one was a butch lesbian or a gender nonconforming woman. There's very few really femme, hot like, chicks running around, right? Where Trump, as soon as I get there, it's like all these hot chicks. I'm like, well, oh, wow, everybody's looking good. Wow, I didn't know y'all was really attractive like that. Wow. Mm-hmm. And, like, and then they were also allowed to be attractive and hot in the White House where that really was like, pers- like you wouldn't even get invited back if you came looking slutty like that. They'd be like, that's not our White House. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Obama, he was, he was a little like kind of uptight about that. Because mm-hmm. <laughs> they told me at one point he doesn't hug women. Mm-hmm. You know, like, don't. Don't try to hug him because he doesn't. It's a thing. Him and Michelle, out of respect, you know, he never wants to be seen as, um, you know, not stepping on his marriage. He's always going to be, you know, he'll hug a man, but he won't hug a woman. And so when I got on stage with him in 2014 at the White House, 
I went in for a hug and I was like, oh, I know I was, I'm breaking the rules, but I feel like I'm queer enough for this. Like, like, yeah, uh, <laughs> like technically I'm bisexual, so that might be worse, but like, oh, oh, oh God. But I was very much like, I, I, I went in, I was like, please, this is for Michelle. Please give Michelle my love. Right. Like I gave him yeah, a yeah. hug and this is for your wife. Like, and now so you, know. you know the secret every lesbian uses to giving men hugs. This hug's for your wife. That's, and I this feel like this hug works. is not for you. I'm going only... to have this hug and you can just go ahead and give it to your wife. This hug is I cool. Had, I must admit, I had slightly alternative motives in the sense that once you get in close enough for a hug, you can get a real good whiff of a person. And I really <laughs> wanted to smell Obama. <laughs> and he is so delightfully scented. Wow. Well, um, I mean, <laughs> like as the leader Irish... of the free world, you oh, should smell good. No. No, he he was he was fresh and crisp, not over cloned, not like you'd sneeze because he's got too much cologne or something like this. Just smells perfect, like just a real solid individual. <laughs> he's probably like, "What you doing, smelling me, Faith?" I was like, "I'm sorry, I'm curious as fuck, right?" But <laughs> anyway, you should you know, smell solid and not like the red light district. No, no, no. He it was he was really like and, and unoffensive. It was really interesting because it was like one of the, he smelled blank. If that's if somebody had maybe gone over him with like some sort of neutralizing odor or something to make sure he doesn't come off to somebody, you know. But I I just you know it's strange to me, especially going through those consecutive White Houses and seeing how differently they were treated by the press. You know, ultimately people were treating Trump as like this evil Stalin-ass dictator. Like he's worse than Hitler, all these type of stuff. Meanwhile, his kids are happy, his grandchildren are beautiful people. You know, him as a person who I've gotten to meet is a really thoughtful individual. So it was really disconcerting to see like this. Uh, I won't call it a mistake. I, I would say that people, especially now with Biden, where I think the same thing is happening with him, where every mistake or flub becomes national news. And like you think that he can't have any conversations because he's always making mistakes or something. When in reality, the press is capturing the worst look every time, right? Mm -hmm. And that that's something that has increased and maybe just been entrenched in media coverage of presidents since Bill Clinton, that there's no interest in making these people look good mm -hmm. because our news sells more when we make them look bad, mm -hmm. right? Um, and that, you know, what's the biggest difference between a Biden, a Trump, and an Obama, right? All three of them went to good schools. All three of them come from families that had access to wealth or access to academic information or knowledge, right? Mm -hmm. Like, when you really think about it, they're, none of them are women, right? None of them are LGBT, mm -hmm. right? None of them come from extremely poor circumstances, so I, I just think it's very interesting that we often are identifying these people are super, super different when in reality they're almost just like different sides of a different coin. Uh -huh. um, but I, I, you know, getting back to I wanted to, you know, make sure we just go back to these little guys. Uh, the name was Haley and William uh, who were who were killed in the school shooting recently. Mm -hmm. These little, little nine year old tykes. There's another one out there. I got to look at the name of the other kid. Um, and, and also, uh, you know, this school is in Nashville uh, where the shooting happened. And uh, one of the people who also was killed was the janitor, uh, Mr. Mike Hill. And he, he was a black man. 
And so it's very interesting to me that at times when black people are shot by mass shooters, there's always a hate crime awareness. There's a, there's a thought of, was this racially induced? Or in this case, you know, out of six people who died, only one of them was black and five of them were white, right? But I, I just think it's really important for us to acknowledge that, you know, people who are doing these things, like you said, it's a mental health tragedy. And all those things about politics that these folks are saying go out the window, right? Like Black Lives Matter doesn't really matter when you're shooting them dead with a assault rifle, right? Right. And was that person, did they ever say Black Lives Matter? Probably as a trans person out in America, most likely they were advocating for black liberation and then turn around and shoot a black person at work. <laughs> and just like, it feels very like we're not really kind of dealing with uh, hypocrisy, I guess. And maybe that's in part because we go, because people are mentally ill, are they really thinking right? Is anybody in their right mind who kills a child, a parent or a, a non-parent? Right. But I, I wonder what can we do, I guess LGBT people in this world, as like what should we be saying right now right because there's a, a big silence right now by the way if you had noticed because you're not on the news mm. but I, I haven't seen any of the lgbt organizations make a statement um, i haven't seen any of the trans groups make a statement well i think now this is uh, this do we have to make a statement are we required to make statements when somebody in the lgbt community does something wrong i guess that's a question too right i mean I think it, it, it matters in what you want to model for the next generation. Mm. Okay. Mm. And I think about this a lot because when I was 17, the people who were 40 weren't modeling what I think I want to model for the 17 year olds today. Mm. Very good. Okay. Right. So yeah, I do want to, our, to their credit, they were recovering from an HIV epidemic that must've been very difficult. Mm-hmm. Oh, I have a list of things that people who were 40 may have been recovering from. Um, Fair enough. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> at the time that I was 17, and I don't excuse any of the exploitation that they were doing to the people of our generation. Um, what they were modeling was not what I plan on modeling now that I'm their age. And so I think what that means to me as as a as a business leader, as an entrepreneur, um, as a dev, uh, as a woman, full stack uh, developer, which is just so unheard of sometimes um, and is a, a small community of its own. Yeah, that's true. Um, mm-hmm. School needs to be a safe place. Um, but the illusion that school is a safe place needs to come away. We, we, we don't actually have safe places in this world and that's the first illusion that needs to be removed you and i and all of us have been trained that as children we live in a safe world and that's a lie and it's an unfortunate lie um and things like and this this may sound crazy but Grimm's fairy tales taught earlier generations that the world wasn't safe and that's a disservice we are not doing the same service for our children that stories like that did for previous generations because yeah, we're yeah. trying to teach them that the world is safe and we're lying to them about that. I think what we're trying to do or some people are trying to do is make the world safe by saying it's so. 
right? That's, that's, yeah, okay, that's a good goes, point. That, that's kind of what I say with liberalism is the lie because somebody says liberalism and they mean this is liberal. We're all going to be together when my lived experience has been the opposite. Right. Mm -hmm. In that every term I ever created with liberals was taken by a white person and resold without me. Right. Mm -hmm. Every work I ever did was taken by a white person who had more power and more prestigiousness to do what they wanted, especially LGBT work. Right. Mm -hmm. But I, I, I basically agree with you 100 percent that a lot of people, you know, I would run safe spaces. Um, and I, it was always a joke to me internally that maybe people, black people got it. Right. Because my safe spaces were for people of color at LGBT conferences. <laughs> <laughs> okay yeah <laughs> and, and I, I i made a thing about this all there's a whole bunch of conferences across the united states that are for progressives that i instituted safe spaces at right and and, and one, once once in a while we'd have white people come in and i would know they would be white because i'm like this is an lgbt space so we know who is who you know and we'd have a white guy and he'd be sitting there with his bag like are they going to get me and i'd be like i think you i think everybody we have a white among us <laughs> And they'd say, they'd say, oh, one of them snuck in. I'd say, listen, you know what I love to do with white people who accidentally come into the people of color safe space? They go, what? I say, we're going to applaud them as they leave, right? <laughs> oh. And that's how you get rid of a white person who's in a safe space for people of color, is you say, we're going to applaud as you leave. And then it kind of starts the conversation because they're like, well, I wasn't planning on leaving, but we're already clapping already, right? <laughs> so no, I mean... That's a whole different way of looking at shit, isn't it? Well, it just helps us have a, a celebration of how you're supporting us, right? Mm -hmm. And a celebration of you being awesome for leaving, right? Because um, and the, we need this space. And it was safe. so interesting. And a lot of times what all that was was providing space was for people just to feel like they could relax, mm -hmm. right? That they could let themselves stop uh, having their defensive fists up. Because every time they walk through a hallway at these conferences, which are, again, progressive, liberal, civil rights conferences, mm -hmm. that they were being touched, that they're being sexually harassed, that they're, uh -huh. you know, my favorite was a Bernie Sanders group of people who surrounded me and started pulling my bra. And they were like, your bra is not sitting right on your body. They're reaching inside my shirt to readjust wow. my breasts. And they're like, we're Bernie's. I'm like, yes, I can tell the difference of normal Democrats. Like. <laughs> You're out of your mind. Wow. <laughs> the type of um I'm gonna need y'all to get your hands the hell up off of me. Oh, I was like, Ooh. listen, you know, just I couldn't believe how severe the lack of respect was. Mm -hmm. And so we had to make those spaces inside mm -hmm. of and a lot of times I would start and say it's an LGBT people of color space, and then eventually it would just become people of color because mm -hmm. LGBT people of color would be like, Well, I got the straight friend and they feeling it. Can they come in too? And we realized very quickly that we couldn't do an LGBT POC. It had to be POC, right? Because generally speaking, the people who were feeling the most safe at a conference for women's rights were people of color. The people who were feeling the most unsafe at a national progressive conference like Natroots Nation were the people of color. Mm -hmm. right? mm -hmm. And that's in part because there was this huge amount of work being done to increase the amount of people of color. Right. So they're like, we're going to do everything we can to build up people of color. So 30, 50 percent of our attendees are people of color, but no work to make sure that those people are feeling comfortable. Mm -hmm. Right. And I was never even really paid. I sometimes I would I get like five hundred dollars, maybe a thousand dollars at the most to get food for everybody for seven days. Right. Wow. And have to figure out how to feed 
you know, 300 to 500 people off a thousand dollars. And I have to use the, I have to use the conference food too. Right. So we're eating crappy food and I'm bringing like cilantro and onions in my suitcase so I can chop it up and make it a little bit more flavorful. Like, you know, I'm going out of my way to try to make this work for us, you know, but it was one of those things that ultimately I realized that I was really not helping by allowing folks to, to hide from that truth that these, like you said, these conferences aren't safe. Right. That they're not friendly to the people who they propose to be friendly to. Right. Right. Um, and that, that many times people don't have the money to go to these conferences. They're, they're, they're staying on bus benches overnight so they can mm-hmm. speak at a conference and, and make a whole bunch of white folks clap for them who won't give them any money. Right. I was like, I can't be part of that anymore. I, you right. know, just to really avoid um, that, but I, I think you're absolutely right that there's an idea of perhaps this generation in the sense of all these people like us who have been experiencing harm that we wish per, to create a world like this. So we insist it must be true. We insist that people will be safe without us really taking that time to understand what that will look like and how does that create. And that's part of maybe what's going on with the diversity, equity, and, and inclusion movement. Right, that we're going to use the power of systems to enforce safety. But to me, it falls by the wayside as soon as you get into the room and start yelling at white people. Because we're using harm to decrease harm, which does not work. So when using harm to decrease harm, no, it doesn't work. I have seen diversity, equity, and inclusion programs that do work. I have seen them that don't work. I think the people implementing them are really key. Uh, if yeah. you have, if you, well, I guess it kind of rolls this way. If you grab the first person who's got it in their resume, that doesn't actually make it so. Yeah. Um, I also see a lot of the DEI work being done by LGBT white people. Um, like most recently, I saw a Writers Guild of America workshop for people of color, specifically BIPOC, which I'm going to start claiming. That was me. I created that term and co- popularized it as early as 2009. Um, nobody else was using BIPOC before Faith Sheldon. And now it often gets used incorrectly to be people think that it means people of color. Like it's another way to say people of color when really it means black and indigenous people of color which we're supposed to be talking about here in America because those groups of people help build this country mm-hmm. and have specific realities that are not often dealt with in immigra- immigration-based uh, identities, right? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. That I don't have the similar reality of not being a Spanish speaker or not being a different speaker when I am speaking Ebonics or I come into the world as a black person and I can't have that same respect for the way I talk when somebody with an accent will absolutely have that, right? Mm-hmm. So, you know, I definitely think that I see that that term being misused, so I keep an eye for it. And I, I saw this Writers Guild program specifically for BIPOC, for Black and Indigenous people of color and LGBT people. And it was very much, we want to increase diversity in writing. We want to help you guys get real jobs in writers' rooms. And then the people who are teaching that program were all white. Mm. And so it's become, and I've seen it in another place, I saw a screenwriting guy, and he was saying, you know, you guys got to change the way you're writing your scripts, you want to get it sold now, every time I do a script, I as a white man always make sure that my characters are either of color or women or both, right, I never write boys anymore, I never write men, 
And what I wanted to say to him was, that's not helping me. <laughs> right? You're taking yeah. an opportunity from a woman. You're taking an opportunity from a woman of color and writing our stories without us. Right? What I oh. really need from the white guy to do is say, I'm going to give up my next writing gig to a woman and make sure she gets a chance to have her story told from her perspective. But instead, what's going on is this kind of patronizing paternalism which is is i will tell your story because it's very important it's not being heard and without me and my whiteness it will never be yeah <laughs> and i'm like you're right it's never going to be because you're going to keep on telling some bridgerton ass shit no offense to everybody who liked that shit but fuck that i have black people have stories and shit like, like I, I don't need to be up in a freaking 18th century costume love you duchess but like you know i have people you know i mean who are into that and i respect them and all that but i'd much rather hear the true story of the people who are serving them food Right? I would much rather see black people who are actually with their real life, like take a real black person's story from 1700, tell their life, right? But instead, it seems like a very kind of fantasy thing for white liberals for the most part. Like, yo, we're going to tell a story about a black person who was a queen back then, even though that never fucking happened. You know, somebody's like, well, Charlotte had some black blood. Motherfucker, you know she never claimed that. Like, <laughs> I'm saying, I'm just, everybody know. <laughs> she, ain't, she ain't never said she was black. She tried to hide that all her life, right? So now right. we're going to have her turn around and be in a show and, you know, Shonda, no, Shonda has problems. I, I ain't there for it. I'm not, I'm not there for it. I don't like it when we take black story and we say now black stories will become white, right? Now all these people, we're going to make you guys, everybody gets to be, now you get to be an elf. I don't want to be an elf. <laughs> So, okay, so this is an interesting idea, and this is something that, um, and maybe this is coming from a place of white privilege. I don't know. You can let me know if you think it is. I don't fucking know. Fair enough. Um, I, I, where I was raised in California, in San Luis Obispo, um, okay, so I was also raised in Paso Robles, and Paso Robles is a very agriculture, and we had um, even fewer black people in Paso Robles than there were in San Luis. Absolutely. And being raised in San Luis, you knew already how few people there were. So we had a couple of guys in Paso Robles who were um, black cowboys. Um, when now, now skipping ahead 15 years to working in the casinos, um, my first introduction to the black um, rodeo PBR, the like I did like this was the most phenomenal thing I could have ever imagined in my life like not only is there one black cowboy like the one I knew in high school like there's a whole shitload of them and they've got a rodeo this is the most beautiful thing I could possibly imagine and they're all coming to the casino tonight what awesome <laughs> we have we have black cowboys they're like this is gonna be like I'm a lesbian and I love cowboys like I love yeah. them like Put a whole bunch of like cowboy hat, cowboy boot wearing, tight, tight jean wearing. Let's talk horses. I love it. Let's do it. We all day. Why not? Okay. So, um, where I'm going with this and why this matters, I have two different thoughts here. One is the idea of cultural appropriation, mm-hmm. and the other one is the idea of if you're making a new country and um, it's a melting pot of cultures, is there such thing as appropriation? Mm. 
my rule of appropriation is it's pretty simple. I've shared it with people. Um, <clears throat> basically, it's very simple. Are we all having fun? Mm-hmm. Right. So if you dress up in somebody's regalia that they only wear to celebrate their dead ancestors at special events that are identified by their sacred priests or like shaman, um, that's no Native people aren't having fun with you wearing their headdresses, right? Right. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, if you are a person of color, like you from Morocco, like this one girl, she was out here. She one of the Real Housewives ladies. She was having some trouble because they were coming for her because she was wearing braids on a vacation. And somebody asked her, what do you think you're appropriating from black culture? And she said, well, I'm not white. (laughs) And I was like, that's the right answer. Uh, (laughs) Yeah, yeah. (laughs) Um, But, you know, she was like, people who have curly hair like mine, when we go on vacation, we often put our hair in braids, right? And that's just so we don't have to deal with it while we're on vacation. We could just be, you know, just having fun. It's good, you know. Mm -hmm. And the reality is there's white people with very curly hair who also do that on vacations. That would be me. So we have a bunch of people who are out in the world who are living similarly, who are being accused by some random person of appropriating or being wrong about how their speech is, which is its own form of privilege, right, mm-hmm. to mm-hmm. or voice to control others by telling them they're not saying the right things. Yeah. Right, right. Um, so I, I do think that there are there is severe cultural appropriation where I've like been to like West Hollywood and for halloween i've seen women like drunk ass white people wearing regalia and going mm-hmm. like ah, la, 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 and doing some stuff with the hand over their oh, mouth that's really like super unfortunate um, <laughs> like that's wrong <laughs> like, right like, right yeah i'm not gonna say racist i say it's ignorant right it's ignorant that you believe that native american people did this instead of had white people who dressed up as natives and made that you know uh Mm-hmm. Um, I had an interesting thing. It, it turned into a big thing and made some news in 2017. Uh, I was at Comic-Con in San Diego, and I was helping out some other black organizers where we were trying to have a black photo of all mm-hmm. the black people at Comic-Con. And Comic-Con is this huge event of over 100,000 people and has less than 1% attendance of African-Americans. Oh. It is one of the whitest spaces you will ever be in in your life. I don't even know if I would be comfortable there. And I'm uh, not really freaking white. Especially if you're black or brown and or any type of white person who like, likes people of color, you get there, you're like, holy shit, this is all white guys. What the fuck? You know, I mean, telling you, like 99, 90% of them are also men, right? So it's like, really, it's, oh. a, it's a total, well, like, yeah. I've never seen something like this in your life. That I'm not this really many that interested men. in that much sausage. No, I'm saying it's really, really weird to be in a space like that in modern era, which is all white men. Um, mm. And then it turned out that a bunch of the black people who were there were in blackface. What? Yes. <laughs> so that was shocking because <laughs> I didn't know people still did that. <laughs> um, and so This I is my confused like, face. Yeah, I was like, what is happening? Because I was looking for black people. And every time I saw a black person, I'd be like, yo, hey, what's up? Like, I'm doing a panel here on black LGBT stuff. And we're going to have a photo for all the black folks who are at Comic-Con being run by this really great, uh, you know, this one dude who's doing Black Heroes Matter, which is like a whole movement to being more black creators in comics and genre fiction and stuff, right? So I was just like passing on the word for this one dude. Um, you know what I mean? Like, just, hey, just so you know. But I went up to this black where I thought was a black person. I talked to her. She talked back, and I looked down at her hands. Her hands were white, but her whole face was black because she had used shoe polish. 
she she did the whole thing. I mean, she did it like shoe polish. Like she covered her whole body except for her hands as shoe polish, so that she would look like a hundred percent black. And then she was dressed as Guinan from Star Trek. So she had the perfect hat. She had the purple hat, the Guinan hat. She had the perfect outfit. She looked great. Okay, and, so and I, but no, I, told I have her, I was really like, mixed emotions on that one. Well, oh yeah, my then, God. Then, she turned around and, you know, because I, I, as soon as I realized what was going on, I reported her because blackface is actually illegal in California. Um, and at comic events, it's actually, it's totally against the rules. You're not allowed to be a blackface. You're not allowed to pretend to be another race. It's like a thing. Um, so I reported her and she was removed from the convention. Um, and so then her family found me to complain about that. And it turned out her family was also in blackface. Uh. <laughs> her husband and her son were Klingons and they had done black Klingons and I'm looking at them like you know there's some white Klingons you know there's some light-skinned Klingons y'all had no need to paint those masks there's a whole bunch of white Klingons within the Federation we got white it's a whole story about how they're not respected because they're white it's like backstory right there for (laughs) y'all there's no no need for y'all to you know shoe polish and and the dad he was real hot at me he got real mad he actually ended up getting um uh, restrained by the police because I, I guess I was such a big activist that Comic-Con assigned me a police officer. So my entire time at Comic-Con, I had a trouble officer. everywhere you go, Faith. I, I didn't know I had gotten that big. <laughs> he was a real nice young Latino man. He said, I don't want to make you feel uncomfortable, but our, our department, the police department in San Diego had identified that I could be a writ at, I could be at risk and that's how they put it was that i could be at risk and so they're there for my protection mm-hmm. and little did know little did little blackface family know that but they was about to get arrested mm. <laughs> because you can't attack somebody for you know asking questions and it was fun because i did the whole thing on a camera and the camera's mm. facing away from me so you can't really tell maybe that i'm black because how i sound right i'm from san luis Obispo, right so yeah. I'm pretty sure people are like, this is a white person asking a question, but I kept on asking this lady, I want to understand, like, why do you want to look like me? Like, why do you paint yourself to be my color? And she truly felt that she was helping me. She was like, I'm increasing the diversity here. More people see your beautiful skin. And I had to be like, oh, it's not the worst reason, you know, just from a perspective. I felt kind of bad after because there's a lot of people ganged up on them and stuff on the internet. And my intent was really to understand why somebody who is white would paint their color, paint themselves a different color, and why they would not understand how discombobulating, upsetting, um, how upsetting that would be for me to be at an event with 100,000 people, and there's only 50 black people at the whole thing, and half of them are actually white people who are in blackface. (laughs) Just... (laughs) So it made me really nervous. I I was like, you could have to give me your credentials. I need to see your mother's face or some shit before I believe you are black. So I'm just like, I'm just going to throw this out here. It is so funny. It is not funny. haha. It's funny. Irony. Like I have been carded by black people before because I've been like, my name's Monique Linnae. And I have mm-hmm. curly hair and I'm I'm in your hair cutting salon because I need somebody who who can cut curly hair. I I don't need a white person. I need somebody who can handle curls. Well, yes, I'm gonna need to see your ID. Well 
my ID's not going to say I got curly hair. You can see that on my head. But mm -hmm. I'm going to need to see your shit says Monique Lene because until I know how African-American your name is, I'm not going to yes. deal with you as a person. Yeah. So, um... And that will get you that that name. That's part of the reason why I named my son Michael Storm, right? His first name is supposed to be Michael Storm. They wouldn't do it at the hospital. They would refuse. They're like, we will not do this. Um, <laughs> but the whole idea was that you go someplace, you say, my name is Michael Storm. Many black people are like, oh, okay. Because mm -hmm. having two first names as a first name is, is more common in African-American community. Mm -hmm. Right. Like John, John Robert or Michael Robert or that type of stuff happens way more often for black folks. Mm -hmm. So I was just like trying to think ahead for him on like how he would be able to be instantly recognizable by mm -hmm. other people. Like he has, a, like you said, a card, a pass. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I was like, we got to have to make sure because I was like, I'm already white enough, like percentage wise, I'm like 27 percent, you know, European or something. So, you know, I got that blood and then he's his dad's white. So he's basically a third black. He's a third mm -hmm. root, is what I told him, you know. <laughs> <laughs> and and I, I say, there are going to be plenty of spaces you just not going to be for you. There's going to be all black people, mm -hmm. and you have to decide. You may not fit into all black people's space mm -hmm. as much as you fit into multiracial space, mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. As much as you feel comfortable with, you know, Asian and Middle Eastern, a whole bunch of people who are different, whereas being in black, black space may feel a little uncomfortable because you didn't grow up in an urban environment and you're not all black, right? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And that there's a whole bunch of black people who have that experience in this world. And part of what his job hopefully will be is to help those every black person, right? Help every person and be able to have more access because of what he might be able to get, you know? Right, right. And, and I tell him, he don't have to though. I tell him, that's up to you. It's gonna be up to you if you wanna do that. I'm not gonna make you be responsible for black people. You know what I'm saying? Like you get to have your own life. But as far as right. what I saw from Obama, that was part of what I saw him do really well, was that he was half white, and his family was a whole bunch of Asian, a bunch of different types of folks in the whole family. So he was mm -hmm. really all about every single group of people getting a chance, mm -hmm. right? Yeah, black people are there, white people are there, Middle Eastern people are there, you know, South Asian is represented, every single group is seeing themselves. And I feel like that's something that people who have multiracial backgrounds really can put in the world in a way mm -hmm. that's very helpful. Right, right. You know, and like, having your name is good. That's like one of the best ways you can come into a space <laughs> because people go, okay, you know, you, you got something. Oh. Somebody knows you. Oh, God. I got a job once because the people who interviewed me, they thought they were hiring a black girl. And I showed up. And the girl that answered the door to let me in was like, I'm waiting. She, she's like, who are you? And I was like, I'm Monique. And she's like, but you're supposed to be black. Like she said that at the door. And I was like, here's my ID. And she's like, oh, but you're supposed to be black. And I'm like, okay, I can't change anything about me. Just like nobody else can change anything about them. So if you don't want to let me in, I got it. It's cool. I get it. And she's like, no, come in, come in, do the interview. Come on. <laughs> so like, it's one of those rare occasions when um, I actually got a job because I was supposed to be black, which you don't normally have happen, actually. Like, no. No. Um, it does happen, I think, more, you know, if you're not the right type of black or you're a different type of black, you know, I've definitely r rode that wave most of my life coming from San Luis Obispo, but then having family who are from Compton and, you know, Chicago and New York. 
Like, I know how to be black when I, you know. And it, it happens. It happened once with somebody in politics, and they were like, they got on the phone with me, a bunch of other black people, and we were talking, and then they came at me kind of hard. And I was like, you don't need to come at me like that. We don't need to even start like this. You don't even need. And they said, well, you could have been talking like that since the beginning. I was like, oh, I could have been. I could have. But I didn't thought I needed to, you know. <laughs> and they were like, oh, shit. I was like, listen, you know, because my people are a little hard. Like if you, you know, some black people who are from politics who have met my family, they're like, you know, you a street hood. I'm like, yeah, I have hood in my family. Like, that's where I come from. And like, I'm the black, I'm the geek. Like everybody knows I'm the computer person. I'm this person who knows all this shit, all this kind of stuff. You could call Faith. She's going to know what the fuck is up with, you know, your, your finances or your, your government issue stuff, you know, mm -hmm. but I'm not one of those people who, who's like, Oh, let me do that for you. Right. In part, because I'm like, listen, everybody's got to do their own thing. And for the most part, if I help you, is that really going, how much can I really help? Right. Mm -hmm. And especially with this brain, like, me pretending to be you for a day isn't going to help you get, you know, anything, if that makes sense. You know what I mean? <laughs> like you, I, better for me to help you pretend to be you better, if that makes sense. Right. <laughs> you know, yeah. like, hey, here's some resources I can think up off the top of my head um, and, and try to help. Because a lot of times when it comes down to it, the conversations we're having, they're really personal. Like even, you know, right. going back to, I keep on thinking, and I was mentioned this girl's name, it was William and Haley, and the other little girl's name was Evelyn, who, who passed away in the shooting in Nashville at a, at a Christian elementary school. And I just, I can't, I can't, one of the things I couldn't get over was just like, I don't know if you felt this too, like coming out in like 90, late yeah. 90s, early 2000s, but like, there was always this dream that like LGBT meant better. Like, like we were actually like, like I felt like sacred, like, like we're special. Like, not more special than straight people, but have a special role in this society. Mm -hmm. And so to see somebody who is part of the LGBT community engage in, in such an act against children, it really feels like we've, got, we've gone so far away from that dream of what the rainbow was supposed to be. And, like, again, it kind of puts forth the lie of love wins, you know what I mean? Or love is love when people are shooting people. Right. Um, and I'm sure there's so many trans people who feel that they're being daily attacked, that they're constantly being attacked. I'm an LGBT conservative, so I've watched myself and others be attacked by conservatives, mm -hmm. right? Um, mm -hmm. One of my dear, dear people I love in the world, her name is Lady Maga, and she is a conservative <laughs> drag queen. Wow. wow. She's, a gay, she's a gay man who does oh costume artistry. And she has these little dresses. She goes to CPAC and conservative events dressed up as a drag queen who's there to support uh, pro-life and support children not, you know, going through surgeries before they're ready for those type of things. And, you know, she's she's pre preaching her message from her perspective, you know, mm -hmm. as 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 a character. Right. Um, mm -hmm. And there was a big conservative guy, Matt Walsh, who, you know, called Lady Maga an ab abomination you know, called the guy who does it, you know, mentally ill, called him called all this different stuff. Right. And I, unfortunately I feel that as long as conservatives are so resistant to being inclusive, that it's, it, there's no, nobody's going to vote for them. You know, like, it's just, you know, I, I'm fine being over here because it keeps me away from the white liberals putting their hands in my panties. But, um, <laughs> but <laughs> I'm good. I'm good. <laughs> 
and having to applaud the white guys who sneak into black events and have to come on, Jason, you gotta go. I just I couldn't do it anymore. You know, I don't want to do it anymore, right? I don't want to be the black liberal, you know, activist who's engaging in those spaces, you know. And I can still be with black folks, you know, and I still am with black people. And I'd be like, you know, I'm conservative. And they're like, what? And I'm like, listen, I know Obama, though. So, like, (laughs) I'm not like, I'm not like never been liberal. I'm more like these days, I truly feel that the conservative folk are more uh, compassionate, more open, more welcoming than I have experienced personally right with within the progressive liberal circles and maybe that would be different for somebody who um got into politics in 2010 you know maybe that would be different for somebody who got in in 2015 they've never seen the things i've experienced right where i got into politics in 98 mm-hmm. so i had to live all of it <laughs> have gone I through am, it. done i'm an independent i'm an independent I dabbled for just a minute in libertarianism, and then I found out how involved the Koch brothers were in the early days of libertarianism, and I decided very um, quickly after understanding the history that I didn't want to be involved in an organization that was involved with them, because I have standards. Fair. That's kind of how I feel about the Soros guy. Oh, yeah, you have standards, too? I found out he was he has like some sort of gay sex party scene going on, which is probably one of the biggest secrets I know. Um, but I was like, that's crazy. I couldn't believe it. I was like, all these really hardcore liberal folks have like these secret wild like leather daddy lives. And and it doesn't get talked about because people are like, well, that's their intimate business. Da, da, da. Meanwhile, they're funding at like hundred million dollar levels and, you know, on the weekends beat small children. You know, or maybe not small children, but you know, young people, young men who are into the S and M scene. And so it was really strange to me that we have basically an undercurrent of all these activists who are engaged in intimate process with each other that ultimately probably leads to kind of a bit of um a silencing where nobody can come clean about what's going on because each of them are engaged in sexual activity or uh exploitation of some kind within these spaces. So I was I was really horrified to to and I have to apologize to anybody who's listening because there were people who came to me for years complaining about it in the bisexual community and I just didn't believe them. They'd say, "Well, my, you know, my board says, you know, a, a board of a, a bisexual organization on the East Coast that that the board members had to sign a document um, agreeing to sexual activity with other board members." And that if they did not do this, they could not be a board member of a bisexual organization, right? Um, and wow. so a black, yeah, a black woman had come to me years before and said, you know, they want to touch me. They're forcing me to have sex with them. I'd say, you know, nobody has to force you. Nobody can force you to have sex. Like, I was just like, that can't happen. But turns out it was actually happening this whole time. Wow. <laughs> and it was only until like four other people came forward and were like, this is what happened. And I talked to an elder and they're like, oh, yeah, they're still doing that. That's part of the reason why I left their board was that I'm happily married and I don't want to have sex with anybody. And I was like, I couldn't believe it. Cause like the yeah, organization no. that was by, we were totally political advocacy. I always was like, we're never doing no sex stuff. Like none of us do any of that. All of us were like either married or partnered or something like this. So we were all like on the up and up. But no, so other- 
groups that, that was a part of the organizing and maybe in part because it came from swingers community or there was some polyamorous aspects um and you know i could kind of find a way for anybody to be good if that makes i you know i can come up with some mm -hmm. bullshit here but oh, it yeah, ultimately no. say that you have a board of directors that has a rule of forced sexual engagement means that you're sexually harassing and raping your community members after right. they get to that level of being a board member and most of them were never you never see them again they join this board within a year or two they're gone and they'll never heard from again because mm -hmm. they get so bad taste in their mouth and they think mm -hmm. everybody else must be like this and i'm like no no there's a whole bunch of groups that aren't like this i swear the lesbians like there's this national center for lesbian rights totally mm -hmm. on the up and up never heard a single bad like we all have to be lesbians together type of thing you know so it really is one of those things where this is happening kind of quietly and not being mm -hmm. dealt with by but even me right i never came forward and say anything about this myself right you know like yeah, what do you yeah. do it's your own community but i feel like this shooting thing is like making me feel like we have to like well, we need that... to step up and own this shit. like this is like us like mm -hmm. you said like we have to tell them what we expect from you like i expect that you do not kill nine-year-olds right exactly that's that's what we need to be saying no like i okay so here this is what i want to model for the next generation when you are so frustrated and angry that you want to commit violence against another person your responsibility to your community is to get help if nobody is helping you Yes. then you need to walk into the nearest mental health place. I don't care if it's the 911 emergency room. Yes. You walk in and you say, doctor, I'm so angry that I want to kill people. And they will yes. help you. They will. Because what you have to do is you have to be the difference in your community if nobody else is going to be the difference for you. Yeah. And what we have to model yeah. is the difference we want in the world. I never had anybody tell me that. I have struggled with anger for my whole life. Yeah. And nobody had ever told me, hey, Monique, the only way you're going to get help with your anger is if you walk through the door yourself. Right. So that's what I'd like to be the model for right now. I want to tell them. I want to tell them because, like, I don't think they know the history. It's, like, almost like a whole bunch of LGBT people know the history of the 1960s and 70s. And then 80s and 90s and 2000s, they know nothing. Like well, we can open like, their damn eyes, Faith. No, like I want them eyes. to know. Like Matthew Shepard, like he gets strung yeah. up on a fence and he gets beat by people he thought were cool with him, by people he thought maybe I'm going home or we're gonna have a fun night or something. He gets right. beat and left on a fence to die, freezes to death, dies alone, out in the Laramie, you know, right out out there in Wyoming right as a as a kid who's lgbt person on his own with no support right yeah. and does does that person's death does that loss not mean anything to anybody right does is, are we not aware that that was a child that was a child of god that's a child of, of our humanity right and what would matthew want right matthew doesn't want us taking out nine-year-olds right yeah. if there's a, a christian who's not believing that you're a good person because you're gay that's not we don't take out their children right no. just like we don't want them to take out our children right right and i think that that's kind of what's going on is this belief that conservatives or others are going to take the children away and, and you know some of that's being put out there of 
of, hey, the trans kids, you know, their parents maybe need to be removed, that type of stuff. But for the most part, almost all the people who are engaged in a lot of the trans kid stuff, we, you talk to them, all of them are straight. They're straight people who have decided that their kid is LGBT. And often if their kid is gay or bi or lesbian, it feels like they put them in the trans world because that's easier for them to deal with. Right. Mm. Not easy for them to deal with a girl who wants to like girls and be mm -hmm. butch. Mm -hmm. Easier for her to become a boy so she can get married and have a real life. Right. Because now I've got a son and it's easier to deal with. Now yeah. I have a son and he'll be married to a woman. And now what do we do? We got rid of lesbians. Mm -hmm. right? And that's what ultimately what I see is happening is internalized homophobia from straight people. And I, I've had right. that dose because I took my kid to these spaces. And I said, any LGBT person, if you do not believe me, go to these kid things yourself. Because they ain't getting run like we run our stuff. They're not being run like how you and me and adult LGBT people, how we would do our things of managing people who have mental illness or, you know, making sure things are safe feeling or like we're trying mm -hmm. to create that even if it's not real a lot of these things are being run by straight people who don't have our um experience of harm i guess right and, so they're telling the they're, stories without the knowledge of the stories no and then on top yeah. of that they're they're speaking for us all of a sudden right. now it's they're the ones who are in charge of my liberation which and they don't and they once don't again want we're being silenced Right. And they aren't actually supportive of LGB. Right. Right. They don't actually think it's a good idea for someone to be bisexual. Right. They don't actually want to see gay men having sex with men. And I think it's so funny because I'm like, you don't realize that your trans son is going to be anal. What? I just. Um... <laughs> I feel like they missed the, they're missing some real critical information about how things work, <laughs> because a lot of trans people have sex differently than using the parts that they're, you know, born with. Um, and that's in part because they take hormones and different things that change that reality. Sure. So I do think that people are really kind of not having the real conversations. And a lot of this is gay fear. It's like a new mm -hmm. gay panic that has, and it's also taking away from real people who have are trans from real people who are intersex, um, who are, I think, a very a much smaller percentage of society than we're seeing now in the medical system getting medical support and it, i really worry that there's that there's gay men gay boys uh, and lesbians and bi and pan people who are not feeling supported in their sexuality mm -hmm. because you're supposed to now be trans which means right. ultimately you're supposed to be straight right you're supposed to transition to another gender so we can fit a heteronormative frame right and that gets away from the beauty of like what I feel is sacred, right? right. The same sexness, you know, the, the David and Jonathan in the Bible, the Ruth and Naomi in the Bible, mm -hmm. right? That these, mm -hmm. We have examples of same sex um, relationship status mm -hmm. and engagement inside of the Bible. Mm -hmm. Not, and we don't necessarily have that for trans. Mm -hmm. It's not to say that trans people didn't exist or that they're not as loved. But as far as actual representation of LGBT-ness in our world, we have a lot more LGB than we do T. Interesting. I'm not saying I've, that there's no transness. I'm just saying that transness, it feels, has been appropriated. That people who identify as trans or people who are engaged in transgender work are often appropriating intersex 
concepts and intersects ideology as far as body autonomy um, and then perverting it, right? Like a lot of intersex work used to be about trying to get kids so they don't get mutilated. Right. That we don't want kids to have their parts snipped off because their mom wants them to be this gender or that gender. Allowing and, them the, the ability to grow to a personality to figure for themselves who they are before they have any kind of mutilations or decisions or, to be made. Or, or, or irreparable like hormone therapies that mm -hmm. will drastically or dramatically change the outcomes of them having fertility. Mm -hmm. So I do think that there's going to be a huge backlash from a bunch of these young people who are going through treatments that they don't realize are removing their fertility. Mm -hmm. um, and part of the reason why I tell, I tell conservatives not to freak out about it, because it should resolve itself in the sense that all these people who are taking the hormones are removing their opportunity to have children, which basically eliminates their opportunity for having a generational extension. Mm -hmm. So it's kind of like they're going to die out on the basis of their choices, right? In the sense that if every single person decides to take and do hormone therapies that remove their fertility, how many of them are going to have children and how many of this is going to continue through multiple mm -hmm. generations, you know, and most of, again, our age people who are trans, like a lot of them didn't do certain things. They didn't take their tops off if they're trans masculine because they wanted to chest feed, mm -hmm. right? They didn't, you know, remove their, you know, their internal parts. I gotta go. Yeah, gotta it's go four o'clock. So let's let's end it. We had a long conversation. We, we played places. We played we played places. <laughs> good stuff. We just want everybody in the world to feel safe and secure mm -hmm. someday. That's what we want, right? I think, and that's yeah. Hope is. One day, um, leading towards a. Uh, I think yeah. I think a safer world. I. I don't want to be the naive seventeen-year-old. I. I know that the world is a dangerous place, um, but I think we could make it a safer place for sure. Yes. And the more we can do to have conversations and make people feel welcome and make people feel safe and really force that. Again, if you hear somebody who says they're so angry they want to shoot people, think about reporting it, right? Think mm -hmm. about getting them some help. Think about how can we get those people help in the sense that that, that person is a loss for us too. Right. Mm -hmm. That young person, this person uh, who's known as Audrey Hale or Aiden Hale, you know, who, who enacted the shooting recently. That's a loss for our community mm -hmm. that that person, their anger overtook their talent and their beauty that they had to share and now will be remembered as a, a death bringer for nine year olds. Right. right. Um, and that that's the end of that story for them. Right. right. Uh, and that we could we could have different outcomes for everybody, you know, especially people get help, people get support, you know. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. All right. Let's let's end it today. But blessings to everybody. Thanks for having this conversation with me again, yeah. Mo. Super awesome. And thank everybody awesome. for listening and being part of episode four with Mo Faith. Right. Until next time, folks. Until next time.